Well, my topic today is rebuilding broken trust. Rebuilding broken trust. About 10 years ago, a new word came into our vocabulary. Now it's been around for a lot longer than that. But the word is deconstruction. The word deconstruction means exactly as it sounds. When you construct something, you build something, and deconstruction is to take it apart. It's to dismantle it. So when people today talk about dismantling the Constitution, they mean going behind and trying to see why the Church Fathers didn't believe what they wrote and so forth, and oftentimes that's the way deconstruction is defined. When it comes to the Christian faith, it's on a continuum. There are those who have questions about the Christian faith, and so they're going through a period of doubt, which is very normal. I think that all of us went through a period of time in our lives when we needed to wrestle through some issues, have some doubts, until we made our parents' faith our own. But on the other hand, there are those who, when they deconstruct, they actually not only leave the church, but they leave, leave the Christian faith entirely. The Bible has a word for that, and it is the word apostatize. In other words, they totally leave the faith. And so I want to define the word deconstruction for our purposes today as a crisis of faith. It may be a serious crisis, it may be a passing crisis, but it is a crisis of faith. And when you look in the Bible, you discover that there is a man in the Old Testament who went through a crisis of faith. He almost abandoned faith in God, but he was pulled back from the brink. And then he explains, first of all, why he almost deconstructed, and then he tells us, what he learned and the mistakes that he made. So that's our journey today as we look at Psalm chapter 73. It is so important for you to look at this in your Bibles. If you have the Bible on your cell phone, look at it there. I know that there are Bibles that are in the pews. And uh, wherever you can find Psalm 73, take time to find it. Now, before we get into the text, I want to tell you two things. First, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, a professor of mine preached a message on this text, and it was so impactful that when I went to prepare this message, bits and pieces of his outline are reflected in what I have to say today. Now, if you remember a sermon that was preached 50 years ago, you know, it was a great sermon. It's not a tribute to my memory. It's a tribute to the effectiveness with which he preached. I don't know that any of you are going to remember this sermon for 50 years, but who knows? The second thing I want to point out is when I was younger, 50 years ago, I uh, spent a lot of time memorizing huge passages of Scripture, some of the books of the New Testament and also 10 of the Psalms. And one of the Psalms I memorized was Psalm 73. And so if you find me quoting part of it in this message and 
the words don't exactly line up to your translation, that will be the explanation for that. With that introduction, we find in verse one of Psalm 73, Asaph, who was a musician, by the way, he was part of the musicians in the temple. He begins by saying, truly God is good to Israel, even to those who are of a pure heart. What a wonderful statement to begin with. But then he begins to launch into reasons why he had doubted the goodness of God and why he almost left the faith. He said, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. And now he gives three reasons for his doubts. First of all, he says that uh, I looked around and what does he say in verse three? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And when the word wicked is used, it doesn't mean some kind of a gangster. The word wicked actually just refers to people living their life without God. He said, I became envious of them when I saw their prosperity. Number one, he said, they are richer, they are wealthier than I am. In fact, later on in the text, he actually says very clearly that they increase in riches. Now, here's what he's thinking. He's saying, if God were to run this world correctly, obviously those who trust in God would be better off financially than those who didn't. But he says, I walk through their crops and I notice that their crop is higher than mine. He said, I noticed that um, they're driving some of the latest chariots. They have a better chariot than I do. He said, this doesn't add up because there are people who trust God who don't know how to pay their bills. They don't know where the next dollar is coming from. So he says, first of all, they are wealthier than I am. And then he actually says they are healthier. Verse four, for they have no pangs until death. Their strength is firm. He said, they stand out with fatness. In those days, that was a great compliment because there was a lot of hunger and uh, there were a lot of people who were in starvation. And so the wealthy actually, they were healthier and they seemed to die well. Rebecca and I know an oncologist who directly or indirectly has presided over thousands of deaths. And to my shock, he said, sometimes the unconverted actually die better in this regard. He says, Christians always say to themselves, oh, God is gonna heal me. God is gonna heal me. And they live in denial. And you know that denial is not just a river in Egypt. So what they do is they they, don't, they avoid reality. He said the non-Christians, the non they just know I'm not expecting God to heal me. And so they die. Some of them die fearfully, some of them not fearfully. So he says they're wealthier than I am, they're healthier, they're more carefree. They are living their life with a sense of pride. He says they are not stricken every like the rest of mankind. Verse six, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as doth a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They speak malice, he says, they speak against the most high. 
they curse God. I love the way he describes it as them walking through this earth and they aren't walking, they are strutting. And he says their tongues, they strut and their tongues are against the heavens. And they seem to be getting by. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 11, they ask themselves, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? He's not doing anything. We're gonna get by with this. So Asaph is looking at this and saying, this really doesn't add up. How they can be that way and they appear to be enjoying life, they've got lots of money, and here's me, poor, unable to pay my bills, and going through a very difficult time. He says, I'm stricken every morning, he says in the text. Maybe he means he wakes up with a migraine every morning. So what is the payoff? What is the ROI, the return of the investment? He says finally in verse 13, it's a very sad voice verse. He says, verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. It says here, I've washed my hands in innocence. In vain, I have kept my heart clean. What's the payoff? I remember speaking to a young woman who said, I'm a virgin because my body belongs to God. I wanted to honor God in my body. And she says, all of my friends are sleeping around. They're carousing on the weekends. They're having all of these drinking parties. And she said, I have to go back to my lonely apartment. So that's what you get for trusting God, right? Many years ago, I was in another country and I needed to buy a, uh, a piece of equipment for my camera. And they sent me to a man and they said, he's a Christian, go to his shop. So I did discovered he was a Christian, had a talk with him, and he said to me, he said, I want you to know that I don't run this business honestly. Because he said, if I did, I wouldn't make any money. He said, do you see these other shops? They're all cheating. I have to cheat too. I urged him, I said, why don't you just run your business according to God's direction and with integrity and honesty and take the consequences. If your shop goes down, it goes down. But maybe God will have some surprise for you. And maybe he'll bless you in unexpected ways. I don't know whether or not he took my advice, but the point is, what is the advantage of believing in God and being a Christian? In vain, I've kept my heart pure. Now, as he was struggling with this, he says in verse 14, I am stricken every morning. Verse 16, it became so wearisome to me. I couldn't make sense of it. And then he says, finally, in verse, uh, he says, if I would speak thus, this actually is verse 15. If I said I will speak thus, I would betray the generation of your children. Asaph said, I didn't spread my doubts around to others, lest I cause them to stumble. He said, I didn't go on Facebook and tell everybody, I'm deconstructing. 
And I want everybody else to know that I'm deconstructing and I'm leaving the Christian faith and why don't you leave with me? Asaph said, I didn't want to betray the generation. I kept this to myself. I worked through it. Of course, others helped him because he went into the temple of God. But he said, I struggled with this and I didn't do any damage in the life of anyone else. And then he tells us finally in verse 17, until I went into the temple of God and I saw their end. He said, when I went into the temple of God, I was totally reoriented. He said, I saw life from an entirely different point of view. And this point of view helped me to look at life on the long range and I saw their end and he said, that's what kept me from deconstructing. So if you haven't been taking notes until now, God will forgive you. But this would be a good time to begin because I'm going to be explaining to you three mistakes that Amos made. Did I say Amos? I meant Asaph. Three mistakes that Asaph made when he recognized that he was on the brink of leaving the faith. First of all, he said this, I realized I've overestimated their prosperity. He says in verse um, 18, truly you've set them in slippery places. Wait a moment, what do you mean slippery places? That's how this psalm began, did it not? Did he not say that, uh, you know, I almost slipped and fell, but they're the ones that are in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you shall, shall despise them as phantoms. Verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He's saying, they may have this kind of prosperity, but it's not gonna last. They're gonna have to die. And it's all gonna end. It's all coming to an end. He says, I was like a beast. I'm like, there is not a single cow in all of Illinois who says to herself, you know, I, I shouldn't eat too much because we're living in an inflationary era and what I should do is make sure that I have some food for tomorrow. No, just gobble it up, gobble up everything that you possibly can and don't worry about tomorrow. So he says, I was like a beast before you. He says, these people are going to die and many of them are going to die unexpectedly. Many years ago in this church, there was a man, he could be here this morning, if he is, I'd like to shake his hand, who's an expert in Chicago cemeteries. Do you know this guy who's perfectly normal in other ways? <laughs> when, he, when he has an extra afternoon, who, he goes to another cemetery. So he'll show you that all the communists are buried here and this is who's buried there. I don't know, we began on a Saturday morning and went all day until evening from one cemetery to another and it was fascinating. 
One of the things that you notice is the differentiation between gravestones. There are those whose names can no longer even be seen because they are small stones and the weather has destroyed the stone. And then you come across one like uh, Potter Palmer of the Palmer House who helped rebuild Chicago after the Chicago fire and it's built like a Greek temple. It's, it's unbelievable with some very nice words. By the way, I have to tell you this. Somebody said to Palmer, he said, uh, you know, when you die, somebody's gonna, your wife is gonna remarry and the man that you marry, the man that she marries, he's gonna get all your money. And Palmer says, if when I die, my wife remarries and her husband gets all of my money, he is going to need it if he has married my wife. <laughs> But the thing that I noticed about all this is even though the gravestones are very different, there is a commonality in the cemetery. Everybody is dead. Everybody is dead. The statistics on death are very impressive. You know, one of the things I've noticed as I've watched the news and others is the number of people who die in their 60s and 70s. I've really been struck by that. I'll tell you, when I got into the 80s, I was so relieved. <laughs> I just said, this is, this is fantastic. I, I made it through the 60s and the 70s. So what he said is, they may be rich, they may enjoy life, but it's not gonna last. And it's not gonna last very long. And they're gonna be surprised because they are actually, he says, walking as in a dream. You know, just about two weeks ago, I came across a verse in Isaiah that I'd never seen before. Isaiah 29. It says that the wicked, they go to bed hungry. They're like a man who goes to bed hungry, dreams that he is eating, and then he wakes up and he's hungry still. Like a man who goes to sleep very thirsty, dreams he's having a nice cool drink, wakes up thirsty still. He says these people are like phantoms. They're sleepwalking. It's all going to be gone. They're living in an unreal reality. It's as if this is going to last forever, but it's not. I overestimated their prosperity. But then he said, I made another mistake, and that is I underestimated my own prosperity. Let's pick it up in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee, Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart fails. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He says, I forgot I had God. I have his companionship here on earth. You guide me with the counsel. And I have to say about my life, 
I've seen the hand of God guide me in many wonderful ways. And then afterward, you receive me to glory. Wow, I'm a lot richer than I thought I was. You know, there's nothing like having God. You know what the Bible says in Romans 8? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Now you know that uh, D.L. Moody was the founder of this church, 1864, three years later, the great Chicago fire came. That's why the original building where the church was founded no longer exists. But um, Moody was able to escape. There's a famous story of him taking a picture with him and, and uh, they grabbed everything they could in the house and then they went to Des Plaines. Somebody said to him later, so your house is destroyed so you don't own anything. He said, no, he said, I'm really rich. Oh, the guy probably thought, you know, do you have a stash of gold somewhere? Moody took him to Revelation 21, where it says in the King James Version, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. Did you know that as an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that those who are redeemed are going to enter into an inheritance that is absolutely unbelievable. They will have an inheritance. You know, you say, oh, it's pie in the sky. Pie in the sky, are you kidding? Ruling with Jesus Christ, those who overcome, I shall grant to sit with me on my throne as I have overcame and sat on my father's throne. You're comparing that to pie? Not even pecan pie would <laughs> compare with that. Imagine you are inheriting all things. And you remember when D.L. Moody died, before he died, he said those words, Earth recedes, heaven opens. If this be death, it is glorious. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones in England, before he died, he said to his family, don't pray for my healing. Don't rob me of glory. Don't rob me of glory. And Asaph is saying, you know, I forgot. I'm guided by the counsel of God. He says, my flesh and my heart fails, which it's certainly true of me when I watch the news. But he says, my flesh and my heart fails, but God is the portion of my heart and my portion forever. Wow. There's a third mistake that he made, and it's actually embedded in verse 21. The third mistake is, he says, I judged God by how I felt by my bitterness. He says, I was embittered. And that's really the cause of many who deconstruct. You talk to them and they discover that they are bitter because of their home life. I've had people say to me, you know, I had a father who went to church. He seemed to be so religious and everybody thought so highly of him. At home, he abused us. I hate my father. I hate his God. I'm out of here, thank you very much. I want nothing to do with Christianity. 
I deconstruct. So it could be the home life. It could be the church life. You know, the church, they wronged me, those meanies, those judgmental meanies. And oftentimes, what they say about us is true, unfortunately. But because of the church, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. Don't, don't give me anything about this Christianity bit. And then the real biggie, and that is anger and bitterness toward God. And that, of course, is something that's understandable. We might say that it's not excusable, but, but it is understanding. Now, just last night, I was on a call-in program on about 200 stations, primarily stations in the South, and the host and I fielded questions for an hour. If you heard some of the things that people told us about the abuse that they endured, you'd understand why they struggle with God. You'd understand that. But God can handle it. I want to tell you a true story about a woman. First of all, you have a mother who loves God, who serves God. She's married to a man. The man abuses the daughter. The daughter grows up. She wants nothing to do with her mother or her mother's God. The woman becomes famous. She makes tons of money, millions of dollars. And uh, let's just look at this. And then she drives her car at a high speed into a building and uh, she is killed. She dies a few days later with drugs and alcohol and the, and the whole bit. Okay, now what we have to do is to take what I would suggest is a cost-benefit analysis. A cost-benefit analysis. How much did her rebellion cost her? It cost her the opportunity to get to know God, to walk with God. There's no evidence that she ever received Christ as Savior, which means that when she died, and the Bible says after death comes judgment, she was going to have to face God alone, without a mediator, without Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. She was going to have to face God alone. Terrifying. That's what it cost her. Well, what was her benefit? Her benefit is she could wake up every single morning an angry woman. She could hold that bitterness in her heart and say, I was abused. It's my mother's fault. It's her God's fault. And I'm going to live an alternate lifestyle. I'm going a different direction. And every day she could wake up affirming the fact that she was filled with vengeance. But what a bad deal. What a bad deal. When you and I find people who are deeply hurt, we have to be very, very sensitive. We have to enter into their pain. There are reasons why people are bitter. But we do help them, have to help them to understand that bitterness keeps them from great blessing. And therefore, it is so necessary for us. And I would say to all those of you who are listening, You've gone through a time of bitterness, no matter who it's about. 
and you hold it in your heart and you say, well, until I get justice, I'm not going to, you know, have anything to do with Christianity. Well, we should do all that we can to bring about justice, absolutely sure. But there's so many thousands of instances in this world where there will be no justice ever. You have to lay it down. You have to give it to God. You have to tell God what you think of him. You have to be honest with him. And you also have to realize that he does promise that he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I want to say a word to those of you who are going through a period of doubt. You're asking questions. That's perfectly legitimate. You may be going through a time when you are having a crisis of faith that is perfectly legitimate and understandable. God can handle it. Jesus can handle it. You remember in, John, in Matthew chapter 11, John is in prison. John the Baptist is in prison, and he begins to have doubts whether Jesus is the Messiah of all things. This man who was the forerunner of Jesus, who saw all the miracles, he's beginning to say, oy vey, this doesn't make any sense at all. Because it says in the Old Testament that when Messiah comes, the doors of the prison are going to be opened. There's no doors opened here in my prison, thank you very much. If Jesus is the Messiah and has all this power, what in the world am I doing here? So he sends a delegation to Jesus, and I'm sure that it was said very kindly, but the delegation says this, John wants to know, are you the one that we should look for, or should we look for someone else? And when they came to Jesus, Jesus didn't say, I can't believe that John had those doubts. After being together, we're at least half cousins, and, and now he's doubting if I'm the Messiah? Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, of those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. If your doubts are honest doubts, God accepts you on that journey. And I suggest what you do is talk to leaders of the church, but also come to Jesus with your doubts. That's why I like the song so much, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without. Oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. Come with your doubts. To borrow a line, Christianity is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. It can take your doubts. If you're an honest doubter, Pascal said this, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, for those who seek the light, there's plenty of light. But for those who are committed to darkness, there's plenty of darkness to keep them blinded. So are you an honest doubter? Are you open to belief? Then investigate Christianity, look at the religion, and see its, its uh, history, yes, but also its tremendous, compelling reasons to believe. 
And some of you need to take out time out of your lives and have it out with God, so to speak, to lay it all before him, let him know how you feel, and deal with your doubt, with your resentment, with your anger, because if you don't, you will be keeping yourself from blessings, many, many, many blessings. There is a story which I've not been able to verify, but it certainly could be true because William Gladstone was a prime minister of England who was a very dedicated Christian. The story is that a young man came to him and said, uh, I need some guidance. Gladstone says, what do you plan to do? The young man said, well, he said, uh, I'd like to get a good education. Gladstone says, that's good. And what then? He said, well, actually, I'd like to be elected to Parliament so that I could do some good for the whole country of England. Gladstone says, it's good to aim high. That's good. But what then? The young man said, well, you know, after that, I'm thinking that um, maybe in my old age, I could write some books to help others and to learn, help them learn lessons I've learned. Gladstone says, that's good. But what then? The young man said, well, I guess I'm going to have to die. Gladstone says, that's right. And what then? And the young man said, I've really not given that much thought. And Gladstone says, young man, get on your knees and stay on your knees until you have thought life through to the very end. Look at how this psalm ends. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you will perish. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, <laughs> praise God, it's good for me to be near to God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of your works. Two different paths when you see the long-range point of view. I'm going to give you a sentence now. And after I give you that sentence, we're going to pray. And in this prayer, it is not a prayer in which you can make things right with God. That takes time till you can really come before God and deal with Jesus Christ, who is the way to the Father to deal with God issues. But what you can do in that prayer is you can say, God, with your help, I will do anything to be fully right with you because I realize that it's the end that matters. Now, I'm going to give you a sentence that I want you to write down. I want you to laminate it. I want some of you who are creative to make some plaques that you can hang up in your home. And it is one single sentence. Are you ready to write? The only thing that really matters is what matters forever. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we are people who go through seasons of doubt. We are people who struggle with our faith. We're people who sometimes can't figure out where we're at. I pray for everyone who's on a spiritual journey, even those who don't know exactly where they are on this journey. Help them, Father, to know that it's the long-range point of view that matters. We pray for those, Father, who need to spend time in your presence to submit their bitterness and their anger. Let it all spill out. Help them to know that you can handle it. And help them to also know that you do indeed bind up the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. And may we always remember, Lord, the only thing that really matters is what matters forever. We ask in the blessed name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen.